Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 928. So Acts 19. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. I got to confess, I'm pretty excited about this passage. I've been looking forward to this. It's so bizarre, it's so interesting, and it's such a vivid display of the authentic power of Christ and his power to save, which if you weren't picking up on that theme as we were seeing, that is what we are here looking at in our passage this morning. We're looking at the true salvation of Christ and his power. So, um, when, it, when it comes to the value of something, we all want the real, genuine thing. This is true with everything, but it's particularly true when it comes to money. Counterfeits may look like the real thing. They may feel like the real thing. They may even smell like the real thing. But at the end of the day, they aren't the real thing. When I worked as a cashier, we used to keep these black markers at the top of our registers so that whenever we got a large bill, we would take that marker and swipe it across, um, especially if it was an old one. Uh, the ink in the pen was, was specially formulated uh, to leave just a light yellow streak on a genuine bill, but on a fake bill, it would turn a very vivid black. I added an extra step, which none of us were very excited about, but it was an important step because counterfeit bills aren't worth anything, and accepting one would be a costly mistake. Now, in the five years that I worked that job, <clears throat> we did come across a couple counterfeit bills, and we even, even to the point we ended up ha- having to hand those over to the Secret Service for further inspection and investigation. It, it was kind of eye-opening. I remember looking at that, those bills with my boss and going, wow, yeah, okay, I can see why they're not right. And I knew that something was wrong, but that really, I see it now. It, was, it, was, it made you wonder how many more of those are out there. It was kind of sad because the people who used those bills thought they had the real thing. They had gotten it second, third hand. It was difficult to trace. But the reality was that what they had handed over for their groceries was just a worthless piece of paper that had been created by a felon in a con. You would never accept a counterfeit bill as payment. So why would you accept a counterfeit savior? I mean, you wouldn't, right? And yet every day people are fooled into accepting both. Without realizing it, people take counterfeit bills and even more are fooled into trusting in false saviors and false powers to deliver them. Some trust in money. Some trust in talent. Some trust the luck, their luck. Some trust in horoscopes. Some trust in human reason. Some trust in the uprightness of their own moral character. But these are all false saviors. They are snares laid down by the enemy of our souls, who tells us they are enough, who tells us that they are valuable. But in reality, these things will bankrupt and destroy us. Jesus calls the devil a liar and the father of lies. He calls him a murderer from the beginning. But Jesus came to destroy the devil in his works. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself... Likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is the power of the redemption of Christ. 
He is the real thing. He is the real Savior, the real King, the real Lord, who alone has power to deliver us from the power of death and the curse of our sin. We must look to no one else. And that brings us to consider the purpose, the goal of our passage this morning, where in recounting Paul's time in the city of Ephesus, Luke presents Christ to us, triumphing over false saviors and false powers that were enslaving people there. Now, I have heard that the Secret Service trains its agents to identify counterfeit bills, not by teaching them about all the different fake bills that are out there. That would be impossible but rather by teaching them to recognize all the markers and identifiers of genuine bills. They compare suspect bills to genuine currency, and in doing so, it allows them to identify whether it's real or fake. In a similar way, we can see Luke comparing these counterfeit Christs to Jesus and then showing us how he has triumphed over them through his word and through his power. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. So let's begin by reading our passage. If you would, please stand with me as I read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Starting in verse 8, Luke writes, And he, that's Paul, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know... And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing, and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Praise be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, as I alerted to earlier, the aim of Luke in recounting Paul's experience here in Ephesus is to show us the true, genuine power of Christ 
over and against counterfeit saviors. That is what we see, especially in there in verse 20, as he sums all this up, telling us how the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. We see the power of Christ's word, and we see the power of his work, which leads us to our main point. Jesus is our true and only Savior, which is seen in the power of his word and the strength of his work. As we look at this passage, the gospel comes up against three opponents, and it prevails over them, showing us the true, authentic power of Christ. As we look at what Luke has recorded here, we can see how this triumph applies very practically to us, assuring us of the surpassing greatness of Christ. And that is what I want to show you from our passage this morning. So we're going to look at Christ against three opponents. First, we're going to see Christ against unbelief, Christ versus unbelief. Second, we will see Christ versus the fall and its effects. And third, we will see Christ versus the usurpers of authority. So let's begin by looking at Christ and how he worked to overcome unbelief. At the time when Paul arrived at the city of Ephesus, it was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. We can put it in the top five. After being willed to the Romans by Italus III at his death, it actually became the capital of the province of Asia. It was a city that was full of wealth and prosperity. It had one of the greatest libraries in the empire, eclipsed only by the Library of Alexandria, and it was also home of the Temple of Artemis, which made it a huge tourist destination. The point is that this was no backwater town. It was the financial and political hub for Asia, what we know today as Turkey. People traveled here from all over, and that made it a strategic location for Paul as he worked to preach Christ and just share the good news where it had not yet been preached. Rather than Paul going out to the nations, here we see the nations really coming to him and hearing the good news preached to them. This is a strategic place for him to be. Now, this was actually the second trip Paul had made to the city. The first time, he had come with Priscilla and Aquila on his way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and then on to the, um, to the church to see the church in Syria and Antioch. Although the Jews in the synagogue had asked him to stay longer then so they could hear more of what he had to say about Christ, Luke indicates that at the time he was under a vow and had to make it back to Jerusalem. So he had told them that he would return if God willed. So now he's back. And Luke says that he spent three months in the synagogue speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is nothing out of the ordinary for Paul. It's really, I think, what we expect him to do. He is first preaching the gospel to the Jews who had the law and the prophets, the covenants, and the promises, sharing the good news with them that God had in fact kept that promise, showing them from the scriptures that that God had sent the Messiah who had fulfilled the law with his perfect obedience, who had died in atonement for, for sin, who had risen on the third day and been exalted as Lord by the Father, all in accordance with the scriptures. So as we read Paul's, what he's doing here, this all feels very familiar. But I think it's particularly interesting as we read this that Luke says Paul was speaking boldly to them, reasoning with them, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It's, it's a term that we see throughout Luke's writing, particularly 
And when Jesus is speaking to people about what he's come to do, we also see it in other places, like when Philip is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. But this is really the first time we've seen Luke use this to describe Paul's preaching as he preached Christ from the Scriptures, even though we're meant to understand that they are one and the same. The kingdom language here is significant because the expectation for the promised Messiah was always, always included the kingdom of God. And proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Paul was also declaring the kingdom of God had arrived with him, even in him, though it was a kingdom that was not as most of the Jews were expecting. They were expecting an earthly kingdom like in the days of David. The disciples themselves had asked Jesus, is this when you're going to restore Israel to its glory? They did not understand what Jesus had said in Luke 17, that the kingdom of God was coming in ways that could not be observed, meaning it was not coming by earthly means. Jesus had come, and in, in his coming, he had elevated that hope of the kingdom to a heavenly one and a global one. This was in the scriptures, which is why Luke says Paul was boldly reasoning and persuading people about the kingdom. He was proving to them from the law and the prophets themselves that their view of the kingdom of God was too small, that it had actually been ushered in by Christ. The Messiah had come. He had suffered and died in accordance with the scriptures. He had risen on the third day from the dead, shown himself to many witnesses, and been raised to the glory of the Father's right hand, pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people and sending them out to be his witnesses in all the world. Paul was proving to the people in the synagogue that the kingdom of God had been established in the coming of Jesus, and now it was being expanded his message to the Jews who were gathered in the synagogue for those three months was that the kingdom had arrived in the coming of Christ and that the only way to enter into it is through faith in him. In those three months, some of the Jews who heard Paul reason and speak to them believed him. Others did not. And in verse 9, Luke says that some became stubborn and continued in unbelief even going so far as to speak evil of the way, that's shorthand, that's a term we see in the New Testament for the gospel and for, for Christians, speaking evil of the way in front of the congregation that was gathered there in the synagogue. They wanted nothing to do with the Jesus that Paul preached. A crucified Messiah scandalized them, and they wanted no part with it. Just like the crowd in Jerusalem that rejected Jesus and handed him over to be crucified, we see that these hardened their hearts against him and even mocked him. In many ways, the gospel is like the sun. It shine, as it shines, there are hearts that have been worked over and prepared by the Spirit, and they bring life and growth. The gospel shines into their hearts, and they, they believe it. With others... We see that the gospel shines onto people's hearts and they harden like clay. They reject the seed of the word. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, as we look at what happened here in the synagogue, as we, as we evaluate the time that Paul spent there, we might be thinking, you, you might be sitting there thinking, but Philip, I, I thought this was supposed to show us the power of the word and the work of Christ. How does this rejection show me that? Aside from these disciples who left the synagogue with Paul, how does this event show us the power of Christ? Did the word of God fail because of the disbelief of these Jews? I think that's an honest question. It's one that I think hangs over a lot of believers today as they see friends and loved ones following the same path of unbelief. But the answer is no. The word of God did not fail here, and it does not fail today either. In fact, Luke shows us that the word of God prevailed in really a most surprising way. Look at verses 9 and 10. Luke says that after these things happened, Paul left the synagogue, taking these disciples with him, and he went to the hall of Tyrannus, where he continued to reason and preach daily for two whole years with the result that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So notice what has happened there. The rejection of the gospel in the synagogue led to the expansion of the word of the Lord going into all of Asia. So let that sink in for a minute. Understand that there's something of the mystery of God's will and God's power at work here even through the rejection of the gospel in the synagogue. This is the same mystery that Paul considers in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he tells us, how, as he would, he tells us about how his heart was broken in sorrow and anguish over how many of his kinsmen in the flesh, how many of his fellow Jews had rejected Christ in unbelief, even though they had all the advantages of adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, and the promises. But when he asks the question, has the word of God failed, Paul answers no. And he says this, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. He goes on to say how because of the hardness of their hearts, the gospel and the benefits of the righteousness of Christ have also now been received by Gentiles who have been grafted into the tree of God's kingdom by faith. Then going on to warn Gentiles not to think too highly of themselves, Poe goes on to say that there remains hope for the Jews and says in chapter 11, verse 25, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Then he goes on to say, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. If, if you go on to read in chapter 11, you will then see Paul extolling God for the mystery of his mercy and grace. It's an astonishing thing, but it helps us to understand what was happening here and why this is a display of God's power. Because the gospel didn't just remain in one building. It went out into the whole region of Asia so that Jew and Greek were hearing the good news of redemption in Christ. As we consider the message of Romans 9 through 11, and we look at this, we can see very clearly that God had a purpose and plan to exalt Christ over the mockery of these unbelieving Jews. He had a plan to call people from all nations into his flock. The rejection at the synagogue served a greater purpose so that the word of the Lord preached in Ephesus was going out into all of Asia. And it's because of that purpose, that plan, that power, that we ourselves have come to hear and believe this truth. And consider all the things that have happened in world history to bring the gospel to you. It's incredible. It shows us something of the mighty power and the glory of God. So as we live here, living in a culture that is becoming increasingly what some are calling a post-Christian society, we must remind ourselves that the gospel has not failed. The mystery of God's will and the depth of his wisdom is unfathomable. When he gives men and women over to the hardness of their hearts, it is not because in them he has somehow met his match. It is because he is accomplishing a greater purpose to exalt Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, just as he did here. He is a God of mercy and of grace. He shows compassion to those who do not deserve it. He holds his hands out to the stubborn and the stiff-necked. He raises righteous generations out of wicked ones. He preserves people for his name's sake. He shows steadfast love to the undeserving and mercy to the poor. Do not let your hearts be troubled about the state of the world. Let it, let it break. When you see sin, let it break. But remember that God's power has not been undone. The gospel is still doing its work, appointed to it by our sovereign Lord. Trust in God. He is a steadfast and sure anchor in the dark night and the storms of uncertainty. Christ will never abandon what he gave his life to redeem. Let that bring you hope when you are tempted to doubt. Let that bring you hope when your heart is anxious. Let that bring your heart hope even when you see disbelief. And that brings us to the second opponent that Jesus overcame in Ephesus. Christ against the fall. Now if we go back to remember the purpose of the book of Acts, you'll remember that while Luke tells us in his gospel about how Christ has established his kingdom on earth through his work of the cross and the resurrection, the book of Acts is telling us about how Christ has expanded that kingdom through his people. In verses 8 through 10, we see how Christ prevailed over unbelief to spread the gospel far and wide through Paul's faithful preaching. 
But the gospel did not just come to Ephesus in word only. It also came in power, a power that shows that the effects of the fall are being overturned. In verses 11 through 12, Luke tells us about some extraordinary miracles that God did by the hands of Paul. Sick people were being made well. Evil spirits were being cast out. Now, we've seen this before, especially in the Gospels, where Jesus would use his power and his authority to prevail over these effects of the fall. We've also seen these things described in the Gospels when Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to do its works, to verify that the word they preached was true. The things that we see here that God was doing by the hands of Paul were amazing, and they had the same purpose. To give us an idea of the kinds of things that were happening, Luke says that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and when they were, their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. This is, this is extraordinary. We're not, we're not meant to think that this was, these things were normal. Luke actually qualifies to say these were extraordinary. And then he makes, us, he makes sure that we understand that Paul was not the one who was doing these things by his own power. They were, in fact, miracles God was doing by the hands of Paul, which were intended to verify the message he preached about Jesus and the kingdom of God. In Luke 11, when Jesus' opponents are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus casted out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Jesus had told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Which is just to say, guys, your logic is flawed. Jesus goes on to say, he says, For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see now the significance of when Luke uses, describes Paul's ministry and says he was reasoning with people about the kingdom of God? And then we compare that to Luke 11. We see the connection here. The kingdom of God is expanding. All of Jesus' miracles, the, the healings, the way he fed the crowds with basically nothing, the way he cast demons out, the way he raised the dead, they were all signs of his divine power and his kingdom work. They verified that. Jesus came into this world as a new and better Adam who did a greater work, a work of righteousness, reversing the effects of the fall. He came, as we read in Hebrews, to destroy the power of the devil, to reverse the power of death, to bring to light those who were in darkness, to bring freedom to those who were enslaved by fear and righteousness to the unrighteous. These works of God by the hands of Paul were meant, were meant to verify the gospel that Paul preached. People had seen exorcisms before, but they had never seen this sort of thing. Sickness, spiritual oppression, and possession, they are being crushed with mere hankies. The word of the Lord had come to Ephesus in word and in power. Now, I do not think that Luke means for us to think that this is, should be a normal thing. He does qualify this by saying it's extraordinary. But the point he means for us to take from all of this is that God really had accomplished what he set out to do in Christ. Jesus had told his enemies that if he did what he did by the finger of God, it was evidence that the kingdom of God was there in their very midst. 
And so it was. Now we see him carrying that same kingdom work out through his servant Paul, fulfilling what he had spoken in John 14, verse 12, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And do you catch how Jesus qualifies his works there? Saying that they would do these things because he is going to the Father? It's because of Jesus' exaltation as the crucified king who overcame the power of the kingdom of darkness through his death and resurrection that these things are even possible. The power made manifest in Paul was not his own. It was the power of Jesus in his exaltation. That's what we're really meant to see and understand from this passage. We're meant to see that Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall that he is making all things new. It's something he continues to do today, something he will bring about fully on the day of his return. He is rescuing men and women for himself, saving them from sin and securing them for glory by his mercy and grace. He is working in dead hearts to give life and the spirit. He is preparing a place for his people to be with him. And he is preparing the world for the day when he will return and finally and fully make all things new. That is what this teaches us. Christ has reversed the fall. The third opponent that comes up against Christ are these usurpers that we see, these seven sons of Sceva. That brings us to our third point this morning. The people in Ephesus who heard Paul preach the gospel saw God's work in extraordinary ways, and it verified to them what he was saying. But even though they were presented with evidence of the word of Christ and the power of Christ, it seems that they really weren't completely understanding the gravity of what was happening there. Ephesus was a place that was well familiar with the spiritual realm. Magical names and incantations were pretty common in Ephesus. In fact, the great library in Ephesus contained many books of spells and magical arts. That was what part of why it existed. The sale of those books for personal use was commonplace, although it was extremely expensive to get your own. Now, certain Jews had found a way to profit off these superstitions. Even though it was against the commands of the Mosaic law. It was very commonplace for these Jewish musicians who were widely regarded and highly regarded in the empire as being in particular, in, in being in control of some particularly powerful spells because they knew the true pronunciation of the name of the Lord. This, uh, this is not a good thing, by the way, okay? This is, they were, they were breaking the third commandment. In Luke, in verse 13, Luke tells us about a certain group of these men, Jewish exorcists, who had come to Ephesus and apparently had heard about the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. And so they decided to add the name of Jesus to their bag of tricks. Luke says that they undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so they are treating the name of Jesus like a magical spell, like, like some secret power that would allow them to affect the spiritual world. One day, a group of these men, introduced as the seven, seven sons of a high priest named Sceva, were doing this. But then they ran into a problem. You see, their misuse of the name of God and the name of Jesus caught up with them. Luke says that as they were trying to cast out an unclean spirit, saying to it, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
the evil spirit spoke back to them and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And much to their surprise, Luke says, the man in whom this evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered them, overpowered them, beat them up, and then they all ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It is, it, it, it's really, this has got to be one of the most entertaining moments in the book of Acts, to be honest. What were these men thinking? Invoking the name of God and his son like a bunch of pagans. I mean, this is, this is like, this is like handing a loaded gun to a bunch of kids. And it went off. They got off easy, really. They broke, they were breaking consistently the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. If, if you read in Exodus 20, you will see that God says he will not hold those who use his name in vain blameless. This is a serious thing. In fact, not only were they misusing and misrepresenting the name of the Lord to the nations, they were making a business out of it, trying to turn the name of the Lord into a prophet for themselves. God, God showed these men a kind mercy in not striking them dead on the spot for what they were doing. And I think he did that for the very reason that as they fled from this house, naked and bleeding, the whole city of Ephesus got to see the power of the name of Christ over and against counterfeit saviors. The sons of Sceva had marketed themselves out to be men of importance and power, when in reality they were scammers and blasphemers. God put them to open shame, and as he did, he showed the people of Ephesus, Ephesus true power in the name of Christ. Luke says that when all this became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The word there is actually worshipped, highly regarded, because of this bizarre event. We see here that a counterfeit power was exposed, and the true power of Christ was exalted. There are two things we need to take from this. First, we need to see and understand that association with Christ, familiarity with his name, familiarity with the truth is not enough to say that we belong to him. There's nothing wrong with the way these men said Jesus' name. They didn't get the pronunciation wrong. The unclean spirit said he knew Jesus and he recognized who Paul was, but he didn't know them. These men were merely trying to use Jesus as a means to an end. They were trying to get the benefits and the blessings of Christ without belonging to him, and it backfired in their faces. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul calls Jesus the source of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But he also makes, makes it clear that the blessings of adoption, holiness, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, Redemption and eternal life belong only to those who have been joined by grace through faith to him. Even if these men had managed to cast out this demon in the, in the name of Christ, that act itself would not have amount, would, will not amount to a hill of beans when they stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day. The unclean spirit's words are an unmistakable warning to us all not to think that just because we know the name of Jesus, we know him or are known by him. 
Jesus himself warns us in Matthew 7, verse 21, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. Did you notice that Jesus says that people who knew his name and did works in his name will be rejected from his kingdom? Why? Because while they knew his name, while they knew his power, Though they did many mighty works in his name, they didn't know him and he doesn't know them. If they had known him, Jesus says, they would have done the will of the Father, which is to believe in the Son, to submit to him in faith, and to live in the life of the Spirit. I, I am afraid that there are many who, ha- who say they have a relationship with Jesus, when the reality is that they have a relationship with Jesus that is on their own terms. They say his name, they pray, they try to be good moral people, but at the end of the day, they have no real relationship with him. They want the blessings and the benefits of Christ. No one wants to go to hell. But they are not submitted to Christ as their Lord and Savior. In reality, They are trusting in themselves, or they are even presuming upon the love of God, saying things like, well, God loves me just the way I am. He has to accept me that way. I am who I am. The reality is that while God loved us, even while we were yet sinners, he did not send his son to die so we could remain friends with our sin. Think about what Brad just read in 1 John 1, where John says, if we say we walk with God and yet we have fellowship with the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. God does call us to himself as we are. He does not say, go clean yourself up and then come to me. But even as he calls us to himself, he does not call us so that we can remain as we were apart from him. No, Christ died to remove sin from us. He died, and if we are joined to Christ by faith, the scriptures say we died with him. Our sin and ourselves were nailed to that tree with Christ. And when he rose, we rose with him made new. Those are whom Jesus knows. If you're in Christ, remember, your life is not your own. It is no longer you who lives. It is Christ who lives in you. We bear his name. By faith, we become children of God. This was the difference between Paul and these men who tried to usurp the name of Jesus. It is the difference between a person who is a Christian in name only and someone who has truly believed the gospel and been made a new creature in him. Friends, Jesus' warning in Matthew 7 is far too grave, far too serious for us to ignore. Do not fall into the trap of a nominal Christianity, of being Christian in name only, thinking that just because you said a prayer or because you went to church or because you got baptized, you're saved and you're good and you can do what you want. No, know for sure that your soul is secure. Know Christ 
And if you haven't trusted him, trust him right now and receive the benefits of his work for you, which can only be had by grace through faith in him. The second thing we need to see is that if we have indeed been united to Christ, if we have this true relationship with him, we must recognize that in being joined to Christ, we can no longer have a friendly relationship with the darkness. After the beating of the sons of Sceva, we are told that many of the Ephesians who had become believers began to come forward and confess and divulge their practices. They were practicing magic. And they stepped forward and they began to confess to others what they had been doing. Before Christ, they were happily practicing these things, serving false gods, trying to manipulate the world to suit their purposes with special incantations and demonic practices. But no longer, no longer, they had heard the word of Christ, they had seen his power, they realized that they had been in the wrong, they repented of those things, they confessed them, they broke fellowship with them, and they lived in righteousness. That is the fruit of true faith. Luke says that a number of those who had practiced magical arts even brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And this was no small sacrifice, friends. When they counted the value of those books that had been burned, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You don't have to be a historian or a theologian to realize this was a lot of money, okay? A lot of money. You might argue that in breaking with those things, they might have saved a little bit for themselves by selling them to someone who wasn't a believer. But they would have been guilty of leading that person astray. So they burned them because they recognized them for what they were, lies and false saviors. The whole situation with the sons of Sceva is like when a Secret Service agent takes a counterfeit bill and lays it up against a genuine one. And you realize that while that counterfeit bill looked good, when it was compared with the real thing, it's worthless. Suddenly, it's clear that the only thing worth valuing is the genuine one. Having seen the true power and the authority of Christ, both in his word and his work, people began to realize that they had been serving counterfeit saviors. They had been holding on to things that couldn't save them, things that were in reality enslaving them and purpose to destroy them. This was true even of some of those who had believed the gospel. They still had those books in their homes. With the beating of the sons of Sceva, it seems like conviction was laid against their own hearts, so they came forward confessing and breaking with this stuff. Now, in this age of silence that we live in, the whole idea of magic books and exorcists seem, might seem a little far-fetched to you. It might seem a little silly even. To think that, so, enough that people could spend 50000 anything on something like this is mind-boggling. But the truth is that the scene in Ephesus hits a lot closer to home than we might think. It turns out that when you deny that God is real or that you assert that God is unknowable, you still can't escape that ultimate, those questions of ultimate reality and meaning. You can say that the universe is all there is, that only matter and energy exist, but you cannot explain why they are as they are. You cannot distinguish right from wrong. You cannot distinguish order from chaos, reason from irrational. You cannot even trust your own thoughts or your reasonings as being anything more than chance flashes of energy in your brain. 
you're still left with that same question and the same needs that drove the Ephesians to pray to Artemis and recite incantations from magic books. And the truth is that Satan's old snares are proving effective even today. Wicca is growing in popularity. I see it in our own town. I see people bearing things, wearing crystals. People are turning to mysticism, essential oils, praying and willing things, trying to influence the world around them. It's real, guys. It's happening. Stoicism is on the rise with men. People invest their lives into following social media influencers trying to get their own following. We look to celebrities to tell us what to eat, to drink, how to act, how to count success. We live in a world that is becoming more and more fixated on self, that is full of anxiety, full of depression, full of fear. We live in a world that puts trust in our own ability and in our own power. But understand, friends, all these things are counterfeits. They actually have no real power. The power, that power and that authority belongs to Christ. He received it from the Father. He has proved it in his death and his resurrection. He laid down his life and took it up again to free us from blind trust in false saviors and in false pleasures. And he calls to us to turn away from those vain distractions. He tells us to forsake the treasures that are temporary and passing away, to forsake saviors that cannot save. And to come to him to receive treasure that is eternal. He gives us a hope and a salvation that is stronger than death. He pours out his spirit to equip us with spiritual eyes and tender hearts that are eager to live for him. He calls us to true power and to true hope. He gives our lives significance and meaning. We see that power in the way God worked in Ephesus. The word of the gospel went out. In power, and it bore fruit. People who formerly did not know the truth, who were walking in the deadness of their trespasses and sins, saw the power of the truth of Christ. And when they did, they repented of their sin. They broke with those old rebellious ways, and they followed him, because in him they had found a treasure that was truly worth something. They traded the security of their manipulations and their false gods for the holiness of the one true God. And they counted all things as loss for the glory of the cross. That is the same power that is at work today. Christ will have his glory over all other saviors because there are no rivals to him. So as we close this morning, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Trust in the power of his cross. Do not associate yourselves with lesser saviors. Trust in the work of Christ for you and find rest for your souls and true joy for your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have studied what might be one of the most bizarre texts in the book of Acts. And yet as we have seen these things, Lord, you have given us a view to to the glory of Christ to the exclusivity of the hope that we have in him. And you have reminded us why these other saviors that call to us and try to lure us astray aren't worth accepting. 
Father, many people have come claiming to have truth, and they're all in the grave. But not Christ. Jesus is alive. We have his testimony. We have his witnesses. We have your word. We have the spirit. And all these things confess the reality and the trust that we have in Christ and assure our hearts of our hope. Lord, it is hard sometimes to trust in what we cannot see, taste, and touch. We see the effects of your work on the world, Lord, and yet there is still an allure to us to come to the world, to appeal to it to save us. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in us, even this morning, to convict us of places that we are, in fact, trusting in the world. Help us to break with those things. Help us to count those things as, as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And Lord, as we do, give us a confidence in Christ that leads us to the joy that cannot be found in anything else but him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.